During the current crisis unfolding in Myanmar, events are happening so fast it can feel challenging just to keep up with them. And we're working to increase our podcast production to stay abreast of this ever-changing crisis. And besides our podcast, we encourage you to check out the blogs on our website, insightmyanmar.org, where you can also sign up for our regular newsletter. And you can follow our social media sites. Just look for Insight Myanmar on your preferred social media platform. With that, let's head into our show. And thank you for joining us on this episode of Insight Myanmar Podcast. We're going to have a conversation with Jack Mient about where his life has brought him from in one place to quite a journey in another. So, Jack, thanks for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to come and chat with us. Of course. Uh, th- thank you, Joa, for, for having me and uh, for all the efforts that, that you've put into continuing to shine the light on Myanmar. And, and the situation around it. So I, um, I appreciate it. Mm, absolutely. And we'll get into your later story towards uh, later in the conversation in the podcast. Uh, you're based in DC, although you're, um, you're quite a traveling man going back and forth between various parts of Southeast Asia and, and the US. But before we get to where you're at today and what you've done to help your country and your people, take us back to the origins of where you came from, how you grew up, the uh, environment that you were in before you found a way to get where you are now. Most certainly, yes. No, so I, you know, I grew up uh, in the '90s in a junta-controlled Myanmar. Back then, they would call it the uh, State Peace and Development Council of Myanmar. That uh, you know was in a um, middle, lower to middle class family. Uh, my dad was a taxi driver. My mom, a local primary school teacher, and you know had a happy, happy childhood. But uh, my parents knew early on, particularly my dad knew early on, that uh, that English as a language was something that um, I needed to learn, in fact, to master, to um, get out of the this um, lower to middle class uh, uh-huh. circle and right. um, potentially, you know, a more laborious um, work growing up. So 
back then, um, just to give a little bit of context, um, you know, this is decade, uh, more than a decade, de more than decades after um, Nguyen's, uh, General Nguyen's policy of uh, not encouraging the study of English and pretty much cutting Myanmar out of the rest of the world, which have continued through the successive military dictatorships after him. So um, the study of English as a language, or really any literature with um, you know, the English language, uh, was either not encouraged in uh, public schools, which are free of charge to attend, um, or out of reach for the average Myanmar citizen to to pursue, mainly because uh, they're taught only at private schools, which of course require um, exorbitant amount of money, at least back when, um, back at that time from my parents' standpoint. So um, they decided to do something completely unorthodox. And um, they were like, you know what? We would um, take him to Shredagon Bogota, which is um, about only a five to 10 minute walk from my home and have him randomly talk to three to four tourists every day. That was wow. really how they, how they approached yeah. it. And after, um, you know, I would go along on long taxi rides with my dad, um, sit by his side, and um, he'd teach me five or seven sentences in English. Um, and, you know, we had these little books where they would literally spell out how it's said in English in Burmese alphabet. And, and I, you know, study them by heart and I'll go to the Shredagon. I mean, this was since I was like three and a half years old. Okay. Mm. I'd go to the Shredagon and just, you know, recite whatever I learned on the car earlier that day. And then yeah. that, that was how I really started um, picking up on bits and pieces of language, whatever I could from, um, from tourists that were there. And from there, um, it, you know, it, it came to a point where my dad was like, okay, well, you're starting to speak more, more English than, than I am. So he, he, he decided to take it another step and started, um, borrowing videotapes and, uh, mm. and, uh, well, really there weren't even CDs then. I still remember this vividly. Mm -hmm. It's just videotapes of, mm -hmm. um, these uh, English language programs like Family Album USA or Treasure Attic, you know, mm -hmm. and just um, having them continuing to listen to them, just familiarizing myself with that mm -hmm. language. And then, um, you know, by complete happenstance, um, one of the individuals that I uh, went to talk to um, happened to be the editor of. Um, the Myanmar Times, which back then was the only English language newspaper in the country. And, you know, I had uh, started practicing. I said I'd love to have a chance to talk with you briefly and practice my English language skills while also share with them a little bit of what I know about the Shredagon's history and so forth. And and they were they were like, this is a good story. You know, this is this kid circumventing the overpriced private school structure and learning English the way, well, um, you know, the way that it's within his, his family's reach. And so mm -hmm. they decided to do a feature article about, about oh, wow. the encounter in mm -hmm. the Myanmar Times. And oh. um, a private school picked that up and decided to track me down and offer me a scholarship, which was, well, um, which pretty much let 
to um, my continuing my studies from six six years old onwards on full scholarship. That's amazing. You know, what's so funny about how your story intersects with my story from the other way around is uh, you talk about your father being a taxi driver and you studying English and then going to Shredagon to practice your English, what you just learned with foreigners there. My story is that <clears throat> I came to Myanmar and when I would study Burmese, my primary interlockers and language partners in studying Burmese were taxi drivers. And I would go to Shredagon to meditate. Um, so it's kind of this flip of what your story was. And I would do the same thing you did. Being a language teacher and a language trainer, I always knew that the best way to remember language was to use it. And so I would study whatever I could in my home. And then when I would go out, not just the taxi drivers, the vegetable sellers and whoever, whoever else, but certainly um, uh, taxi drivers are one of the main, uh, just being caught in that Yangon traffic was was one of the main ways to practice. And I just remember these absurd conversations where, you know, for example, I'd be studying jungle animals and I need to use it in a sentence. So as we were driving through Yangon traffic, I'd say, are there any elephants in Yangon? And they'd say, no, there's no elephants. And I'd say, oh, there's no elephants. No, there's not. And then I'd say, well, how about leopards? Are there any leopards? And just whatever absurd vocabulary I had to be able to just get myself to use it in context and have these kind of ridiculous conversations that, uh, um, that was showing that I was using it, you know, having the right pronunciation and using it correctly, whatever other grammar and language terms. So it's kind of an interesting flip of, uh, of what you were doing. But uh, of course, your, your English got uh, infinitely better than my Burmese was ever, ever able to get to. So um, but that's really the best, isn't it? Like that's just that, you know, it, it, it interpersonal <laughs> encounters. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's so much fun. It's also, you know, what really started off as wanting or trying to learn a language opened up doors to so much more, right? Um, one of which being, of course, um, well, you know, walking up and talking to random strangers that, um, as I learned later on in my life, is is a skill set in itself, right? The ability to develop interpersonal mm -hmm. skills, the, the ability to make friends, strike, start, strike conversation. That, um, that sort of was instilled in me through my pursuit of language. And um, not, not to mention, of course, the you know, capacity to be able to um, stay in touch and maintain uh, contact with people, which, you know, in a increasingly, um, uh, they, they say, what is it, in a social media world, we're becoming <laughs> more and more antisocial, right? The, and mm -hmm. in, in that environment, um, you know, when after meeting new individuals and, um, you know, there was always a question of, well, I'd love to stay in touch. And that was how I pretty much developed pen pals, right? And uh, connections all across the world. Mm, I see. Wow. Developed an interest in their cultures because, you know, I'm mm -hmm. sharing about mine. I mean, it's only human nature. Um, yeah. I'm asking them, well, what, what's it like in your country? Right? Mm. How, how are kids my age? Uh, you know, how, how do they, what are they interested in? What, you know, what, what do you, do you have this? Do you have a similar structure? Do you have a similar, and there, there's, there was not, you know, obviously there was a whole, not a whole lot of political stuff back then, but mm -hmm. even from then there was a, um, a keen understanding, perhaps even just subconsciously, right? That um, the folks that I talked to were living in a much freer and open society than the one I was. I didn't know mm -hmm. any better. I didn't know mm -hmm. any other, mm -hmm. but I knew 
just from their anecdotes, just from the way that they talked uh, and the questions that they asked me, it was clear that there was something more, bigger, and freer out there. Can you give any examples of anything that comes to mind from that period where there were interactions you had in conversations that kind of uh, opened this this window or this door of something that you couldn't quite see beyond, but suddenly you just had the realization there actually was a door there that you would never realize before into this other place? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, the, the, the one... Um, quest the one big I guess um, thing that I well flashing thing I should say that I I remember um, was that uh, there was this movie by Harrison Ford back, back in the I don't know it was in the late 80s or 90s called Air Force One and I remember just loving that movie and and there was a scene where, you know, he, he was, uh, it was uh, the, the role he was playing was as president of the United States. There was a scene where he was headed to the airport and there's this motorcade, right? A big limousine with all the, you know, flashing lights and the motorcade. And I, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And um, whenever uh, I turned over to my dad and I said, well, what's that and how do you get one of those and he said well you have to be president to get that that's the president of the united states and you have to be president to get that and i said well i want to be president and he just laughed <laughs> right I'm like yeah well if that's if that's what it you know because i didn't i mean i was five okay so um whenever then whenever i went back to shredagon that evening um and uh, when people asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, my answer from then on was always, oh, I want to be president. <laughs> and they, they <laughs> found it amusing. They found, they found it interesting that uh, even though our country had, you know, no, no such thing as a president at that time, there was a military mm-hmm. dictator and there was, without clearly understanding what that it mandates to, to be president, right? And um, I should add that whenever, you know, I go talk to these foreigners, these large crowds of people start um, to form around because they just it was just a funny sight right. and this yeah. little kid talking to foreigners in English and just a large groups of pilgrims and, and mm. you know Burmese would just crowd around and <laughs> look yeah. at well, what what's going on here uh-huh. this this seems interesting what's mm. he talking about you know and some of them would just be like well what is he learning English you know we'd love <laughs> to send our kids to that school that sort of um, thing and mm. um and I was, you know, doing my usual spiel, and um, and I think one of the um, foreigners asked the, the question of, well, how how do you intend to do that in in Myanmar? Uh, which which really sparked because I again, you know, I'm like, well, um, mm-hmm. I said I don't know. Mm-hmm. You tell me. I'm fine. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. And and he said, well, you know, you need elections to mm-hmm. to become president or representative of any kind, and mm-hmm. the will of the people. And and you know, he he um, perhaps a little too serious of a conversation for a five year old, but um, I will never forget it. He he said wow. that you know it was not uh, the the flashing lights and the cars and and the 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 luxury that associates this very 
high, very public um, uh, official duty. It, it was really the sense of service that comes with it, mm-hmm. the sense of service that comes with it and the burden of responsibility that these are just the, um, the, the, the well, just uh, accessories to the real work at hand. Um, it, I didn't quite get the entirety of it. Sure. I, but it sparked something in my thought process that um, hadn't really quite thought of before. But that mm. after that very conversation also, we got pulled aside by a friendly um, face within the Shredagon, a regular pilgrim who understood English. And he said to my dad, you better put a lid on your son with all this talk about elections and politics. Mm. Mm-hmm. I know he's young, but the junta doesn't understand age. Gosh. And when when crowds form around a young child and a foreigner, yeah. you need to understand that there are also military intelligence, pagoda, shredagon, temple, security, all of those people. Some speak English, some don't, but mm-hmm. you don't want to take your chances. Tell mm-hmm. him to change his answer. And my dad, of course was, oh, I had no idea. He's, mm-hmm. he's just turned five, six months ago, but sure, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. And my dad said, you are no longer to say that you want to be president. You shall say you want to be a jewel merchant from now on. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, but why? He said, well, <laughs> because that's just where we live in. And mm. you can save all your, you know, all your thoughts and all your um whatever it is that you want to say uh, for when the time is appropriate or in a country where it is appropriate to, but for now, put a lid on it. That was my, uh, my first encounter with, with censorship and where you keenly attuned to the sense that, Oh, wow. Well, one power is not the pomp and glitter that comes with it. It is in fact the responsibility. And two, I don't mm-hmm. live in free society. Not mm-hmm. at all. Not mm-hmm. even close. Mm-hmm. That's so much for a five-year-old to absorb. I, I can't even imagine it. I mean, <clears throat> because not only are you first absorbing your first political lessons in terms of what you want to aspire to and what your country allows, which in and of itself, a, a child comprehending even the mere existence of a political system, let alone which one it is, is 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 um is conceptually very complicated for for that mind and then second after after having some glimpse of the existence and contrast of political systems you're then immediately burdened with your limitations and recognizing the system that you're in as well as your own aspirations that are limited by it so i I just can't even comprehend what what it would be like to five. And I know that, you know, right now you're imposing your you're you're superimposing back your own feelings and perspective onto that moment that maybe you weren't so aware of at the time. But the pieces were there. And just to have even those pieces there that more in the form of budding questions than any kind of answer, I would assume. But as a as a five year old to begin to work apart and think through these complexities, um, that's uh you know, that that itself would set you on quite a path, I think. Yeah, I, th- I thought I thought so too, Joe. I mean, it uh, it certainly um, opened open your mind to a lot. I mean, it, it made it all it did was it made me ask a lot more questions. And right, right. I asked a lot of questions, 
to a point that uh, you know it, and I understand the restraints that um, the public, my public school teachers uh, were were imposed, and that uh, you know they too are under state surveillance, and um, their curriculum carefully uh, monitored and, mm-hmm. and crafted. So the, there's only so much they they too can share, right? And they they themselves are constantly oppressed. So. Um, that sure. certainly trickles trickles down to to the students, I and mean, that that became yeah. the entire education system as is, where you know you you just learn what is um, taught. Um, in fact, it's ideal if you just um, study every well, learn everything by heart, and um, pretty much regurgitate uh, whatever's in the textbook, and that's the definition of a good student. Bad student mm. is where you question your elders, where you mm-hmm, right. question too much. Then you're then then you're re- rebellious, and rebellion is, um, well, you know the the t- ticket to um, an, an uh, dangerous, if not a, a, a calamitous life moving forward. Right. So that that's how it was um, framed, and I, I should talk about the the public school system mm-hmm. though I got away from it you know mm-hmm. I still I mean growing up in like I said a lower lower middle income neighborhood um, I was perhaps um, the very first in among my friend group to be able to go to a private school you know they, mm-hmm. they thought it was so funny when on mm-hmm. my first day of school when I had my necktie and um, mm-hmm. <laughs> which which reminded them of a tropical fruit and <laughs> and, and the, and the uh, d- navy blue shorts I wore they thought made me look like a traffic police cop mm, <laughs> it was uh, it was it was just funny you know yeah. uh, to be to be going to private school and um but I was so constantly exposed to both worlds right with the private schools having you know more access to um to libraries and um, certain literature along with it, even though the, you know, I- import of uh, certain literature is still banned, right? Um, there, they are crossed out sections. I mean, in, entire pages torn in some of the books that you'd read. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't think I've read the full version of uh, George Orwell's 1984 or Animal Farm since... Mm-hmm. Uh, I joined only when I joined the American Center or the you know the U.S. Embassy controlled American Center because everywhere mm-hmm. else pages torn off or redacted <laughs> some right. of the speeches that were given or some of the language that were used. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, all this to say, the um, just to give a glimpse, right, of what what it means in the Myanmar public school system is that it is determined by your grade, what um, sector, what field you go into, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the grade, of course, as I mentioned earlier, being determined by what you could regurgitate back from whatever is in the textbook. So those who who can memorize the most gets the highest scores. And if you stay on this path and you get the highest scores, that can determine what you do for the rest of your lives. With number one being the highest scores, the best, the best gets to go into medicine. The mm-hmm. second highest gets to go into engineering, so on and so forth. Right. Um, the you know those with lower scores cannot can never um, 
go into fields that are determined, quote unquote, higher up. But mm-hmm. of course, those with the highest scores can go anywhere they they please. And of course, mm-hmm. if you have the highest score, you know, to enter medical school, the parents always go, "Well, why would you um, jump all the way down to say, for instance, philosophy or mm-hmm. or law?" You know, it it almost is is funny where you know you have it's not uncommon for for parents to say. <laughs> Well, you know, you, you're not doing your homework. You're not studying right. Do you want to end up going to law school? <laughs> because it's, it's right. the lowest of the, the yeah. rank, the lowest yeah. of the grades end up in law school mm. or philosophy, because which, which tells you really um, how much, how discouraged, right, the legal system is or free mm-hmm. and what is or um, anything that, um, is not structured hard sciences that clearly dictates and indicates uh, a, a, a sense of order, right? In everything you do, a step, a sense of order, procedure, and flow. That's it, and that that makes you the 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 top of society, right? And everything else is an outcast. So um, it. You know, growing up in that, it 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 was tough. If you are a uh, a nosy kid with mm. uh, huge ambitions, yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's just say uh, I I caused my fair share of trouble with uh, with teachers and adults alike. Yeah, and that was something I wanted to ask. How did you balance your aspiration, your curiosity, your inquisitiveness, and in your words, your nosiness? How did you balance that with being in a totalitarian state that to many people, and this, I'm not sure to what extent this was true to you, and that's really my question, engendering a sense of fear, a, a sense of paranoia, of self-censorship. Uh, even the years that I was in Myanmar before the democratic transition, even knowing that the penalties to me were so much less than anyone actually living there, I can remember the kind of madness of self-censorship playing in my mind and just thinking about what to what to say and how to say it and when I went too far and when I covered too much. Um, but in in your case, having this this real curiosity and inquisitiveness to want to learn about the world and about yourself and being in an, in an oppressive society where some measure of fear needed to serve as a self-protective mechanism, but you know too far can make you uh, kind of paranoid and crazy. how did you how did you balance these different competing factors in your young journey at that time? Right. Um, you know, uh, I was fortunate to, once I moved to private school, to have had great teachers who um, encouraged that sense of curiosity, right? Um, uh, with Because private schools, to some degree, are shielded from, um, well, they are, first of all, they're exorbitantly priced, um, but, but I got that taken care of for me, um, fortunately, due, due to the scholarship. Um, so the, the the contrast between you know the limitations imposed on private school teachers and then public school teachers are quite vast. My mom, being a public school teacher herself, um, you know would 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 tell me th- that uh, some of the stuff that I discuss or am able to um, write in my essays or you know share with my teachers, she she never would have been able to do. But she. Um, almost always look on longingly, you know, and thought, 
And it's, it's such a stark mm-hmm. contrast, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, you know, everyone in my same economic class, um, my mom being a teacher for 25 years, actually 28 years of her life, mm-hmm. um, you know, she, she, she loves all her students. And uh, I think there's a, an, a sort of longing, even a bit of regret on her part whenever um, she gets a glimpse of the coursework that, you know, I've been assigned and the conversations that I've been having. And, and I come back home and I say, she's happy for me. But at the same time, she's like, oh, I wish I could have these same interactions with, with, with my kids, you know, with, with my yeah. kids in my classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, although she's, of course, not. And as a government-employed um, teacher under the government school system, I mean, it, you know, she could, she could potentially even be arrested if she broke away from that curriculum. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so it was this, this conundrum, but I noticed that early on. Right. Uh, but I, I was fortunate to have, you know, teachers to have books that I could escape of, um, to, you know, mm-hmm. um, as I mentioned earlier, George Orwell became one of my uh, wow. favorite authors. Right? Wow. Um, I, I had uh, my pen pals who I managed to keep in mm. touch, stay in touch mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I'm also a very visual, you know, um, person. I've been, I became obsessed with uh, listening to speeches. It's just mm. listening to speeches, uh, just the way that or, or, oratory works. Perhaps it's the, you know, this subconscious from five-year-old me with, mm-hmm. uh, well, you got to be, whatever it is you do, the, what, the biggest, best thing in the world is to be president. So I started mm-hmm. looking at presidential speeches and mm-hmm. I just fall in love with um, Bill Clinton speeches. So we were able mm. to rent these. Um, by then there were, there were CDs that we were able to rent at um, the U- USIS, US Information System, also known as nowadays as the American Center mm-hmm. in Yangon. So we go there and you know, I pick up um, speeches across great speeches across history or or just inauguration speeches really and and just watch them over and over and over again hmm. and um and for the longest time I, I i thought uh because i such a big fan of um of bill clinton that uh i thought the the southern drawl was the only and most <laughs> way to speak english I, well I, yeah uh, yeah i i started imitating him and you know uh-huh. In, in my, I mean, Myanmar being a former British colony, mm-hmm. my, my teachers uh, had a British accent and, mm-hmm. and they taught me to speak in a British accent. And then I discovered Bill Clinton and I'm trying mm-hmm. to sound like this. And they're like, <laughs> why, why are you talking like that? We thought, thought I was making fun of them. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, it, I, I, yeah, I was hooked. I just kept listening to mm-hmm. it. I wrote down quotes that I liked, you know, and, um, and, and I, I, I knew there was just something um, so intriguing about leaders and decision makers mm-hmm. that has the support of the people. You know, growing up as mm-hmm. as I now you know go into my teenage years, you become more acutely aware that no one in society, you know, it doesn't matter your economic class, is a fan of the the government. Yeah. Everyone's unhappy with the governance, right? Yeah. Everyone, I mean, it's a rule by fear. I mean, of course, they're fearful. Yeah. 
they wouldn't um, express it, but you know, there, there's no sense of love. Yeah, <laughs> there's no right. sense of, uh, you know, the, the way that even the, even the way that you look at, say, um, you know, some celebrity that, that, that you like, or, or a, well, nowadays you have social influencers, but back mm-hmm. then you had, you know, movies. So you have a TV star, right? Because mm-hmm. you look at um, a TV star or say some of the, you know, celebrity status level, monks who effectively go around preaching people and you know um the crowds that they draw and then you look and i i like again i'm a nosy kid i observe (laughs) things and i look into the eyes of these people and there's this you know this glimmer of hope almost this adoration right love towards these individuals and and never you never see that with Mm -hmm. anyone in the the administrative structure in the governing structure mm-hmm. yeah, they, they were, you know, by, by my early teenage years, we we're starting to, you know, hear whispers of, um, the opposition of the lady, of course, the story mm-hmm. of the lady that I was able to uh, learn about through whispers. Um, and, um, in, in fact, um, you know, that we were starting to, uh, circulate pamphlets with her, picture on it which was highly mm-hmm. I mean you you, you mm-hmm. someone finds a picture of her in your notebook or something that's in <clears throat> prison right so I still remember that but I, I had one of those and, mm-hmm. and I remember my mom sitting me down and just you mm-hmm. know yeah. really giving me a lesson of I know how you feel but I'll also tell you how we would feel if you, mm-hmm. if you end up seven years in prison because my yeah. dad, I was in my teenage years already, right? And and there there are teenagers who get arrested all the time. Yeah, so yeah. that um, that was a, a wide awakening uh, of sorts. Mm, I'm curious. You know, you mentioned how you got so enamored with uh, the speeches of leaders, uh, especially addresses, and especially Bill Clinton and, and his style of rhetoric. And you were getting more and more accustomed and familiar with, uh, it sounds like largely the American patterns and styles of rhetoric and rousing speeches and, and being able to uh, have, to choose words in such a way that would really the skill and this magic of being able to use one's words to rile up and, and inspire and encourage uh, all of one's followers. And looking at your understanding of how that was operating in an American sense and with American leaders and society and culture. And then looking back in Myanmar society, looking at examples, the examples you gave perhaps of, uh, of monks who are giving speeches to many, many fold people that are listening of political leaders like Aung San Suu Kyi, who is, is also trying to give speeches to inspire the people's well. And then perhaps the speeches of the military. And I, yeah, I, I, I get totally that at that time, the military was not really giving those speeches and not using rhetoric that really rallied anyone because everyone hated them. I wonder if there were other times or other venues or closed door functions where you were able to hear uh, technically how military leaders were using their rhetoric and what they were attempting to do with it. And just what your thoughts are in looking at which parts of this this rhetoric and this rousing speech making are tapping into something universal in the human spirit and where you're able to kind of pick apart what works in an American space and then how the Burmese space is is, is different and contrasted in that and what's what's working there in these different venues. 
Yeah. Yes. No. I. Um, thanks for that great question. I. I think. Um, you know, good oratory is just um, really an an encapsulation of what what the public sentiment, what people feel. Right. If you're able to find the right words to capture what people feel, um, you will you know get a following. I mean, you will and a following not so much because you know, you, you're, you're, you're creating anything new per se. It's just that um, you, you're able to put into words what others aren't, um, either by circumstance or either, you know, because it's just uh, hard to um, put into words the, these um, feelings of repression that have been uh, pressed down into mm-hmm. society for decades upon mm-hmm. decades and mm-hmm. Not to mention marred by um, civil war and, and economic inequality. So you add all that, and it's like, you know, oh, I'm too tired for this to figure it out. Let's just survive becomes the modus yeah. operandi of yeah. most of the population. But then, um, deep down, you know, pressed down, I should say, in there is an innate yearning for anything but this it's not even yeah, so much that right. we want something it's just that yeah. anything but this system right that yeah. that all that is that has always existed and if you mm-hmm. can tap into that um you can draw out pretty much you can draw out the entire country you can have a voice to not so much change the country but um put towards the sentiment of the country right and which is, I think, uh, as close uh, the, to, you know, um, that description is what Dong Aung San Suu Kyi was able to capture mm. um, you know, in, in the late 80s and the early 90s and throughout. Um, and then once again, when she came to office, because, um, you know, for, for the longest time, the way the social contract theory where when you look at governments and say, okay, in exchange for, you know, the the power and authority that you have, what are the protections and and rights that we are endowed, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Doesn't exist. It's always been, well, you know, if you, if you want to make, if you want to make money, if you want to, you know, get kickbacks and get rich quick, go join the military. I mean, it's, it's an enterprise and unfortunately one that has turned into a criminal enterprise mm-hmm. in, in, in the aftermath of the 2021 coup and, and today's uh, military dictatorship yet again. Um, so, so I, I lose my train of thought here, but um, when I heard those speeches, when I heard people being able to articulate, and you know, you study mm-hmm. American politics and you get the sense a lot of the mm-hmm. time what politicians, what they lay out and even the best ones are already existing sentiments of, um, they may be changed, but they're already pre-existing sentiments of change, right? Mm-hmm. That are really um, emphasized and, you know, um, through powerful rhetoric um, brought, brought to life that becomes the face or uh, tag line of a movement. But you need to have those pre-existing, uh, I guess, sentiment in society to begin with. Um, and I learned that by, um, I really learned that a political component of it when I went to join monkhood 
as a child. Um, you know, you would imagine a Burmese monk, uh, a young Burmese novice, no less. It's just well, either you, uh, if it's a more you know rural area monastery, you you, you play a lot with your fellow novices, and uh, you uh, go with your alms bowl, you get your day's meal, and. Mm-hmm. Um, as some of my friends would joke, you try to sneak in a late evening meal because you mm-hmm. know you're not allowed right. to eat dinner. Right? That's that's the typical um, rite of passage, if you will, yeah. um, that every Burmese Buddhist boy goes through. And mm-hmm. I did so the same in my teenage years, and I ended up at a a monastery that um, uh, has long been affiliated with my family. Now, mm-hmm. the head monk of that monastery. Um, who has since become, you know, my godfather, my mentor, and mm-hmm. really my source of inspiration, uh, my first real mentor in anything that has anything to do with political would mm-hmm. be him, uh, mm-hmm. was the Shui, Shui Nyawa Siaro, mm-hmm. um, the chief abbot of the, the Dadu Buddhist Monastery. He was uh, a rebel in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he just mm-hmm. did not care he said what he wanted to say he but he understood he understood uh, politics in the sense that you know he knew what levers to push when to pull back uh but he was always sure. eithering on the brink right mm. um, and he had gone arrested so many times he, he'd gotten questioned so many times and um and yet he you know the, the tenacity in his ability to stay on course was just mm-hmm truly inspiring and hmm. um again uh the nosy self that i am um and i think with some of the you know early installations of well no fear in going to talk to random strangers mm-hmm. i started asking him a lot of questions and normally hmm. novices i mean forget full full monks novices don't uh, uh, so much associate with the chief right. abbot or the head monk of yeah. an entire monastery that's just out of the question but yeah. he, he seemed, you know, he seemed to have a lot to say, and I seemed to have a lot to ask. <laughs> so I it started with the softball questions, you know, like, how did you get so good? I think everybody responds <laughs> to that question, you know, how did you get yeah. so good? And of course, I mean, I don't, I can't think of anyone in history that would <laughs> take anger at that issue, uh, yeah. at, at that question, right? Yeah. So it starts with something like that too more the hard-hitting questions and it got to a point where he would literally stay up all night to talk to this 13 year old mm-hmm. and he had you know he had so much to do he you know um, running a buddhist university with uh, over twenty thousand monks and, oh, wow. and there he was giving this teenager some attention and and i asked and he answered and we began to develop a, a mentor menteeship that has lasted a lifetime. He also learned that I spoke English. And so he said, okay, well, I'll teach you, you everything you want to know on history and um, you know, the, the people's movement, our, our struggle against military governance and you know the, the mm-hmm. nature of ethnic um, politics and uh, religion politics, uh, monk politics, all of it, right? Mm. Uh, if you teach me a little bit of English. So I'm like, deal, right? And I and he wouldn't let me leave the monkhood. I mean, it was supposed to be a one week. And my, mm. my 
teachers would have to come to the monastery with homework because the chief monk decided, all right, we're going to keep him around for a bit. And the teachers are like, summer is over. He needs to come back to school. And monk says, well, I think he can spend a few more months. You, you, you come here. And so the teachers had to, you know, indulge him. He was that kind of figure. He's a community leader. Everybody mm. loved him everywhere mm. he went. Um, and I, I saw that. I saw the hope that people looked at him with. You know, I saw that when he said what was on everyone's mind so beautifully and in incorporating some of the teachings of Buddhism or the, the, the history um, of ancient kings into um, his regular speeches, mm. even for a brief moment, mm-hmm. there was this almost, you know, therapeutic calm in an otherwise very oppressed, uh, unfair and unfree society. Uh, he was able to deliver that, right? I mean, it's, this is not even, you know, full-fledged revolution we're talking about. This yeah, is yeah. hours of escaping the reality that we have to go back to. But in that, in those lecture halls, in those monasteries that he spoke at, you saw it. You saw it in those people's faces, and they go back home nourished, right? even for that faint, brief second. And that, mm-hmm. to me, was, I mean, that, I was hooked. That was it. There's no That's going the- back. Yeah, that's amazing. And it, it, it makes me want to ask the question, you know, lately the Burmese monkhood uh, in international press has gotten a pretty bad rap and that's not totally undeserved. That's with the rise of the 969 and Mabatha and Uiratu and these other kind of terrible anti-Islam propaganda that's been going on for the last decade, as well as some nationalist monks who are not necessarily opposed to the coup. At the same time, this kind of focus by Western media has, has and, and a focus on those that are making the most noise and most commotion, this has left a gap in the existence of so many monks like the one that you reference that it really, for when you're looking strictly in terms of Western media, it really takes some pretty deep contacts and understanding with the language and the culture and the religion of this country to be able to to find these people who are making the same commotion, who are doing, I don't want to say small things because they're not doing small things, but they're doing things that if you're, if you're an outsider, they're not really going to rise above the level to understand what they're doing and why it's important. And so my question with that, you know, with that in mind of, of how this is seldomly covered in English by the international press, it's seldomly understood. Uh, the, the more hateful aspects have been the things that have perhaps rightly so been in, in the news in the past decade. And, um, uh, and certainly there's a place for that. And yet there's also a place for monks like this. And so my, my question with that background and context to help our listeners better understand this area of the Sangha and monks like this this particular monastic and who he is and what he does and how he does it to better understand this, which is is has not come to light as much in other places, uh, is first of all looking at, you know, in what ways did this monk show uh, an alignment between the Buddhist teachings and uh, the and his role as a monk and democratic values that are creating a fair and inclusive society for all and where you're, you're valuing um, 
the inclusion of other people in that society. Um, you know, first of all, looking at that, and then second of all, looking at this issue of rhetoric and how and, and someone as yourself who's so attuned to oratorical skills and how one can use language to put something together in a simple, straightforward way that inspires people in ways that they wouldn't even have known in what ways in, uh, in, a, in a particularly Burmese and a Burmese Buddhist environment was this monk able to use language in an effective way that was able to promote this his his uh, his way of disseminating Buddhist wisdom, while also showing the Buddhist teachings in alignment with these Western values of democracy and human rights. Um, th- thank you, Joa. Um, I, I think to to answer that, I, you have to start with um, the, the the evolution of the role that monks play in in Burmese society writ large. Right, you for for the longest time. Um, monks, what what they have really offered is a filling the especially in rural Myanmar, right, filling the vacuum of leadership, governance, and really basic public services um, that well the dictatorship simply could not fulfill, right, including with education, health. Um, in many cases, monks play sort of a uh, the respected elder role. You know, they would uh, go in to judge disputes that um, at least minor disputes, that sort of stuff, um, and are highly respected um, th- throughout every uh, village, commune, and uh, state township levels. So that you have. You have people who, with you know, little to no um, basic education availability in these um, these districts and these villages, that would pretty much have to send their their children to to the monastery. The monastery um, takes care of it. The monastery provides you know at least you learn how to read and write, and at least there will always be food, right? Because uh, Myanmar is a ninety eight percent Buddhist uh, country, and um, there's always, you know, the spirit of um, community and uh, generosity, um, giving back, right, this instilled in our um, psyche and and culture. So for when economic conditions go dire, um, more, more communities start relying on um, monasteries and the monks as leaders of those monasteries to, uh, well, to lead really a community at writ large. Um, that has always existed, and uh, you know, of course, the sentiment of what what that also means then is then the sentiment of and the struggle of the public then starts to resonate with the monks as well. A lot of people, you know, think. Um, the general idea of the Zen Buddhist monk who, you know, just meditates and is immune to the struggles of the world doesn't quite so much uh, encapsulate the, the the picture of your typical Burmese Buddhist monk, you see, or the Ramada mm-hmm. Burmese yeah. monk, where you are, in fact, very in tune with society because you are, um, you know, no matter how you look at it, a leader of society. 
Um, and when the you know economic mismanagement and the impacts of decades of uh, isolation from international community through sanctions um, really start to hit home. Right? I mean, Myanmar is a very resource-rich country, so we were able to withstand and tolerate most. But when the rest of the global economy um, continues to move at an incredibly fast pace and we see our neighbors, um, you know, surpass our GDP by twofold, threefolds, and the next thing you know, tenfolds, that becomes a problem, right? It becomes a problem because import costs starts to increase. I mean, there's, you know, job losses, um, the you know, basic uh, economic functions start to fall apart. And of course, um, corruption and mismanagement of a kleptocracy, one might even um, say, starts to impact the very bottom of society. And this then reflects on, well, this then transfers to the many of the monks who, which then sparked what you may recall, the 2007 Saffron Revolution. Right. I mean, it was something as simple as, well, you know, um, the cost of rice and oil, edible oil, basic goods or electricity not being, you know, uh, able to uh, be on for even a, th- a third of the day. Right? Some, something as basic um, mm-hmm. and necessity as folks in the western world would look at it yeah it's it that sparked that movement right and you have hundreds of thousands of monks taking to the streets in peaceful protest and prayer um, against the military rule and it's not even so much like give us a you know elections or give give us uh, a new or put Aung San Suu Kyi in charge. It wasn't even that sort of, mm-hmm. it was simply, okay, well, will you do something to address the very obvious, very increasing degrees of poverty instead of, you know, lining your pockets stuffed too full, right? That, that, that was a simple ask. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, the military's response at that time to that was, let's shoot at them. They shot the monks. They shot at the monks. They mm-hmm. put them in jail and squashed any and all sense of um, activism and um, leaders that were involved. They, they accused them of, you know, oh, we need a revamp of the of the of the the monkhood because yeah. they have been infiltrated by dissenters and mm-hmm. you know the the, 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 the what they call the pro democracy terrorists, which is quite uh, yeah. <laughs> which is ironic. Yeah. <laughs> um. And and so the but they but they when they while they quashed it with force, I think there was an acute awareness among the military leadership well at least the military strategists that crap we we've lost the monks right we've lost that base and you know the military's tone and rhetoric has always been a largely xenophobic 
um, you know, protectionist, culturally oriented, um, anti, well, pretty much everything anti, you know, anti anything progressive, really. Um, and the way you tie that bind is mm. through culture and religion. Yeah. And there are no better representatives to sell the story of culture and religion than monks. And so now you've gone ahead and shot at them. You've lost your base. You can't lose your base is I think mm -hmm. the awareness that they got. So they really, uh, from 2008 to beyond started in, in at all costs in any way that they can to reshape that, um, relationship. Uh, I think mm -hmm. that is the one place where the military invested the most in is, to hmm. when it comes to it to own the rhetoric of protecting race and religion as theirs mm -hmm. because the, the the purity of the Bama race the cultures that come with it and Myanmar being a Buddhist majority country that is constantly under threat of a Muslim domination all of that they knew that they needed to own that in order to have any legitimate political base mm -hmm. and whatever cost it takes right most of it comes hate you 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 will talk a little bit in the uh, about uh, in a bit about the you know the rohingya issue and mm -hmm. uh, subsequent uh, crimes against humanity that were committed all of that um as they look to move out from a you know the well they 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 were trying to move from a purely military dictatorship to a civilian rule, right? Um, through the forming of the 2008 constitution. So when they were look drafting the 2008 constitution, the, the, the awareness was if we were to go out and have political standing, what is it that we're going to stand on? What is it mm -hmm. that the other side is weakest in mm -hmm. the weakest side being, you know, foreign powers when you say foreign powers there's an implied there are so many layers of implied meaning right it's just like well you know you have these big bad colonizer types that are going to come and take our resources and mm -hmm. our women and our religion that mm -hmm. that's how they're framing it and of course it it cuts two birds with one stone because the base of the opposition leader don san suji's popularity was well and is uh, to some degree still but she did lose a lot of it during the rohingya issue um mm -hmm. was the west and mm -hmm. so the military needed a counter to that and in crafting that counter uh, monks were the perfect uh, representatives or agents of that rhetoric and you know they they were able to reshape i mean it's a lot of it is just politicking you know you just throw throw money, benefits, titles, you you mm -hmm. root out um, the more quote-unquote disobedient ones. And then um, you start to propagandize and, and um, craft uh, rhetoric around. And of course, social media, with the emergence of social media, I think the Myanmar military most effectively was able to... Um, you know, utilize it in 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 this uh, hate field as it may be in this carving out their own political platform based on race religion, um, and and enforcing this 
well, as far as I, you know, pragmatically speaking, non-existent uh, threat that mm -hmm. all these countries around us that are Islamic, there's a, you know, Islamic propaganda to take over um, the, the one last haven in mm -hmm. <laughs> Southeast Asia of, you know, uh, well, I mean, you have, you have Thailand that's still Buddhist, uh, Cambodia that's still Buddhist, um, and then, you know, Myanmar is largely Buddhist. And they're like, well, they're, they're these outside, you know, uh, OIC, Overseas Islamic Corporation, and outside oil interests who are going to come in. They're going to, you know, marry our women in the dozens and force all the children into, you know, becoming Muslims. And there's mm -hmm. a global conspiracy to come after us. And we need to do something about it. That mm -hmm. that sort of rhetoric, that um, propaganda and falsehood that they start uh, spreading, and um, and for the monks that um, you know, relatively unknown monks or the extremist monks that um, were preaching those, they throw money behind and put them on national level platforms. So they were like, "All right, what do you need? You know, we'll set up a TV station. We'll set up a." You know, we'll set up speaking tours for you. We'll we'll give you helicopter escorts. Whatever you need, we'll pour mm -hmm. money, and it worked. It worked because um, I think you know when when um, during the opening of Myanmar in two thousand eleven to the transfer of a civilian government, well, quasi civilian, I should say, because of former military guys who came in. Um, into civilian uniform, and then um, Dong San Suu Kyi's NLD party winning the election in 2015, their first attack, as expected, right? You are weak for race and religion. The first, mm -hmm. first attack, right? So, right. which is also the pressure on her to, you know, which again, I thought was the wrong political move, but again, I'm a political novice, so what do I know? Um, but the some explain the domestic political restraint that she had in not being able to be more outspoken about the Rohingya was because from the get-go, it's that, oh, you will just sell the country off to the Westerners and the, you know, OIC money, right? No, not to mention this. There's a the Jewish conspiracy too that the Hunter feeds into, right? Which they tie off into George Soros. Not, not too unlike some of the, uh, you know uh, the rhetoric that that you hear um, in in some parts of this country as well. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line of it is the attack towards her, where oh you're you're weak on you know race religion and standing up for our uh, traditionalist cultures and values, and and the monks at that time and the monks at that time by then. Um, majority i would say had bought into that and i i think yeah. they the military was able to um, win that base between the span of 2008 to 2021 when they staged mm. the coup you'll notice a mm -hmm. very few um level of you know sangha participation in the in the um the revolutionary activities yeah have emerged since, which you're you're seeing a, another next generation, or, or I guess um, a, a shift in the dynamics of how the new generation of Burmese uh, see 
Buddhism as a religion mm-hmm. and monks as leaders of society. Mm-hmm. Mm, before we get into that part of it, which is contemporary times and definitely really important to get into and unpack, just to spend a bit more time on the some of the points that you brought up, I think it's also important to put everything you said in a context going back centuries that and look at the religion itself that buddhism is a religion that the founder of it's it's a religion built on impermanence this is very unique among world religions that awful often promote this sense of permanence that it's the outside world that's fleeting but the salvation we're offering you is the one lasting forever kind of thing for your soul Buddhism rests on a message that everything, including and especially the Buddhist teachings, are also impermanent. And there's and that the the Buddhist teachings excel, excel, themselves will one day arise and pass away like everything else. Nothing is exempt from this law of impermanence. And in Myanmar in particular, there's been a a paranoia and a fear going back centuries that's been chronicled mostly by, I I would have to reference the work of Alicia Turner. She's just done some really excellent work in in some of her books and showing the previous history of this fear uh, and how it was manifested within Burmese Buddhist society, going back to the time of kings, of the signs that the Buddhist teachings would be leaving. And there was kind of this sense of, you know, not on our watch, like, when we're around and when we're guardians of these teachings, whether we're monks or lay practitioners or, or, or leaders in, in the royal court or in government or in the military, whoever, uh, whatever your position is, that you're, you're looking at these telltale signs of what would be a premonition for the Buddhist teachings starting to fall apart, uh, whether it's a, uh, a pagoda that crumbles or whether it's a... Um, you know, a project that doesn't turn out or, or the other way auspiciously, whether you're able to somehow get a relic or someone becomes, uh, reaches a stage of enlightenment within this region, these are auspicious signs. But there's this constant fear that, that Alicia Turner is describing is actually internal. She's in her book, in her book, she's describing that there's this inherent internally manifested fear that because the nature of the Buddhist teachings are impermanent, that there's always this risk that our generation is going to be the generation that loses it. This is going to, you know, this is inevitably going to be lost. We know that. There's no question about that. But the start of the loss, the start of the loss of the sasana is going to happen in our generation. And that's intolerable. We need to do whatever we can to prevent that. And in Turner's analysis and work, she posits that this internal manifestation of this fear then latches on to whatever the current uh, uh, external uh, circumstances are. So whether whether there's an external threat coming from this entity or that entity, well, this is the thing that's now going to manifest this eternally inherent fear that the Buddhist teachings are going to leave in our lifetime. And of course, in the colonial era, there were many such concerns for obvious reasons that with the loss of the king, that these teachings were were now in jeopardy. And that's also why the work of someone like Lady Sayada at that time and what he did to be able to repurpose and bring the teachings in a modern way that was not scared of modernity. Uh, as you mentioned, there, there's a fear even of the English language. That was true even back with Lady Sayada. Lady Sayada wasn't like some of those other monks that saw the English language itself as a threat to Buddhism, was actually engaging in intellectuals and scientists and 
and other figures around the world uh, to be able to ha have the confidence of showing how Buddhism and the Buddhist teachings could adapt. And that's really the genesis of the whole worldwide mindfulness movement that we've seen today with some of the reformations that Lady Sayadaw was making in the 19th century. But just to, to re not to reframe, but to, to provide this context to everything that you're saying, everything that you're saying is, is, is absolutely true and so insightful in terms of what it's telling us about how the uh, following the 2007 Saffron Revolution, the military regime is using and manipulating the the traditional clergy to be able to to keep them on their side and use their rhetoric and latching on to the existing fear of that day, which was the uh, which came mostly in the form of. Um, of Muslim invasion, uh, some Western materialism, I'd say, thrown in there as well. But but certainly the, and even hearkening back to the old colonial era. Sometimes, I mean, you can always count on the good global new global light of Myanmar to be able to, uh, to throw those references in. But that there there were these. Um, it was this kind of, uh, in Turner's words, it was this kind of eternally internally manifested inherent fear that has been present for decades and for centuries that the Buddhist teachings might be leaving during our watch and we can't allow that, what, is, what happens to be the cause of the threat this time? Oh, it's the Muslims. And it just so happened that this whole context and rhetoric fit into the military's need to shore up their most needed area of support. And so it was all these different confluences coming together, both the historical, and I'd even argue, you know, psycholo religiously psychological aspect, which is animated for all this time under the surface with the external manifestations of, of, of scapegoat and the Muslims with the military's need to be able to find a reason justifying their existence. All of this, I would argue, is actually obscuring the fact that it's kind of this, uh, this smokescreen that is, is preventing the truth of what I see that if there is a genuine threat to Burmese Buddhism today, and if there is a threat to the Buddhist teachings being on sensitive ground in Burmese society today, the Tamana is the greatest threat to Burmese Buddhism that we've seen in our lifetimes. That might be a bold statement. It might be controversial, but that would be a, that'd be a statement that I would make. And I would, I would stand on that hill to fight for the validity of that statement. And I think nowhere have I heard more evidence for that statement than what you started to infer at the end of your talk just now, what we talked about previous to this podcast, where you were describing to me uh, your contact with certain people in the resistance, uh, youths especially, that were feeling that the monkhood and the clergy and Buddhism itself was the second biggest enemy of the state, uh, or, or not of the state, but of the state that they want to build, of their movement behind the military itself. And so by the military's direct actions, opposing you know, the, the, the more progressive and inclusive style of Buddhism that you talk about from your mentor and godfather and that monk, by the military's own actions, we're seeing a, an erosion of faith among the next generation that I, I don't know historically when we've ever seen in Myanmar before. Well, I mean, it's I mean, it's not surprising, right? It's a nature of power politics. Mm. It's a nature of resource flows, and this is how it's how these um, propaganda campaigns work. Uh, and I think you're spot on, Joe, in your in your assessment. But uh, you know, almost ironic, if not straight up oxymoronic, isn't it? 
a Buddhist whose ideology is and rooted in the idea of impermanence that you can hold that nothing can hold be held on to forever, being nervous about not being able to hold on to their space in society. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's the reality. I, I, but I think it's not so much, you know, a, a critique in any way of, of Buddhism as a religion, and really not a religion. I mean, Buddha has always taught us it's a philosophy. It's an ideology. Right? That's, mm-hmm. that's always been the case. Mm-hmm. And that's not the what we should be talking about here. The The issue and at the core of it has always been the culture, right? And the, the culture that surrounds this practice and the culture that becomes added on and deeply entrenched with varying influences so much so that the baseline idea of uh, the, or the core ideology that this culture becomes, that this culture is constructed around begins to fade, right? And that's really what's happening in in this case. And you you have that, and you add on to it the uh, the real time economic hardship and impact. You know when you're mm-hmm. when you're so disenfranchised and and so um, economically disadvantaged. Um, what do you really have to hold on to other than identity? Right, identity of being the majority being buddhist which is it's like almost like being you know um well but my buddhist is in some areas of the country is almost like being the equivalent of a wasp here in the u.s sure, with yeah. debt. you have yeah. a lot of debt but hey your grandfather used to be this that and the other it's similar um mentality where you know um you, you, but you take the, the 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 class and which there is there's a class structure it's, it's, i think it exists in every society and more so evident in myanmar society um but when uh, you know for folks that are at the bottom of the food chain where they feel that they have nothing to hold on to and worse they have nothing to lose the only thing that they can establish commonality and in some cases superiority um is through religion is through mm-hmm. what you're, you're born this way you're born as a Bama buddhist or as a rakhine buddhist or as a mom buddhist and that makes you better right that gives you an elevated status in society then then well whoever is not right i think that that that's the the core of it that the military was able to tap into when uh, the, the hateful and eventually, um, you know, I, I would say, uh, dangerous a- activities that they were um, able to, um, uh, that they were able to strike um, among the populace. So, uh, and you know the the whole notion of Im- impermanence and um, you know all that yeah that that sounds good on on paper and principle but you know in reality and you've been to Myanmar enough times to know that that's not the case at all I mean you talk to anybody on the streets and anybody in in the schools even at the the, the taxi gates that you like to frequent so often you know tell you we're 
you know, we're getting exposed to to capitalism and the culture of consumerism from mm-hmm. every end, everywhere you look, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, no matter how much you try to put a lid on it, I mean, you have, uh, you know, it's from soft culture, you have Korean soap operas coming in, right? You have, you know, Thai dramas that uh, you, you can pretty much uh, bootleg and get a, get mm-hmm. a, you know, in, in CDs. I grew up with bootleg CDs. I got to be mm-hmm. honest, every, every um, entertainment I've, I've watched from the age of, you know, five to 15 is bootleg mm-hmm. <laughs> or borrowed uh, from, uh, from some library or, or the, um, or the American center. Right. So it, it's, it's, we're constantly exposed to it. Um, uh, they, we may pretend that, or the government may pretend that they're keeping the country isolated, but you can only, you can only keep it isolated so long and it's not as stringent, right. Say the likes of North Korea. So, when, when you are exposed to it, but have no access to it, that creates the kind of hunger that, I mean, that's hard yeah. to, put, you know, that's hard to put a, uh, a barometer on, I would say. And, and in a way, if utilized right, that hunger can be useful. That mm-hmm. hunger can be the driver for economic growth, the likes of which we haven't seen in the in the modern modern economy, not yet. That's why a lot of people call Myanmar the the, the last Asian tiger when that economy opened, right? Mm-hmm. When you have um, been held back for so long, but you are exposed to what the outside world is doing, getting ahead. When you're finally is your chance, you tend to give it your all, and that mm-hmm. was what people were willing to give. Yeah. Uh, at the at the beginning of the country's liberalization yeah. and and the numbers speak for itself you know i mean the, the, there is you know if the, the if you're measuring happiness index and you know a quaint little country with all 98% buddhists just um really you know digesting the the notion of impermanence and uh and non-material possessions that would be completely wrong characterization of sure, the sure. I know and grew up in because it is not. It is anything but. And and people were hungry and they were hungry for a better future. And they wanted to be able to uh, compete regionally, internationally. And they wanted all the advancements and material possessions that the rest of the world had and they've been deprived for so long. And they, they didn't want handouts. They wanted to get there themselves. Yeah. And I sensed that and I saw that, which is why, you know, when, when I had the opportunity to come and study in the, in the United States, um, I, I, I made it my career goal to align with that, uh, this, you know, economic liberalization uh, fo- focused on enabling development and, and fast-paced growth that would appeal to uh, Myanmar's growing base of you know, young, educated, and a liberal-minded crowd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, yeah, I think you bring up some good points, and I think you're really, you're painting the picture of just this uh, many contrasting and conflicting forces that are coming together. And I think that's what that's what the transition period is. I think it's going to be many years and many decades to really for uh, future historians and scholars 
to untangle what exactly was happening during that time because there were so many different forces that were hitting so many different people in, in different ways as well. And, and I don't think it's necessarily mutually exclusive that you can have a people that are completely engaged in this opening capitalist window of opportunity and some sort of freedom, especially if you're a, a Bamar Buddhist at that time, and some buried psychological paranoia fear uh, that um, that is relating to the Buddhist teachings and when they're going to evaporate and if they're going to leave during this lifetime. I think that human society is very complex and there could be these different forces that are that are pushing and pulling in different ways and animating you even in contradictory kind of styles as well uh and, and looking at just the monastic scene and the the monastery context as you were involved in uh in in, in being at these monasteries being a burmese buddhist and being a novice for some time but started to grow in an interest in politics and in rhetoric and oratory and leadership uh and then looking at those skills and how they were exhibited in a monastic setting and framework one of the things that stands out in my mind that that you said when we met that i i has been on my mind ever since i have to repeat it just for the benefit of our listeners you describe how the politics that you witnessed in Burmese monasteries were on a different scale than anything you've since seen in the Beltway where you live in DC, that it would put anyone in DC politics to shame how, how sharp and, and how, how high the political game is in the Burmese monastic setting. I think that's someone, I think that's a statement that would really, really surprise and confuse a lot of Western listeners who, as you said, have this very different idea of what a Buddhist monk or a Buddhist monastery should be. So can you also fill out a little behind that statement? What, what is it about the politics of Burmese monasteries that make them so cutting? And how do these politics manifest? Shab elbows, Joe. Shab elbows. <laughs> Um, well, because, you know, the, the, there's the optics and then there is the practice. Uh, I think, you know, if you maneuver, cajole and a bit conniving as a politician, there's sort of a, a general sentiment of acceptance, right? I mean, well, you know, sometimes you got to you got to make deals and, you know, move things in a certain way to get things done right um but with with monkhood and and monk politics it's entirely different uh you have you have to be especially in monk politics right you have to be self-serving under the banner of selfless selflessness you are every move political and uh, uh, position uh, of influence and dominance, right? Uh, which will, well, you know, either mm -hmm. set the stage or which will either have a say in, you know, who gets what monastery, real estate, you know, who gets to run, um, how many groups of monks uh, and be placed in which uh, region, state that, uh, and, you know, which has... Uh, where do you get to preach, right? Even all of that, right? Uh, that uh, the, the, the society of uh, 
they, they call it Dangamahanayaka, so the, the, the grand society of, of, of monks, I, I would roughly translate in, in, in uh, English, is, is pretty u- unique and it's, it's so nuanced, right? I mean, it's, it's a level of skill that I, I have never witnessed anywhere. And I've been in Washington over a decade and, you know, I've seen how politics move and, um, and how, let's just say, um, in, for lack of a better term, how the sausage gets made, <laughs> but not the kind of, um, not the kind of level in which it does so in in monk politics in Burma. Mm, and what does differentiate it? You talked a little bit before about the uh, the kind of the guise of the rhetoric and the form it needs to take, but in, in are there any other elements or components of why you think that? these monastic politics are are just so sharp and so biting and so clever in a way that in a decade in Washington, you haven't seen anything comparable. That's just a stunning statement. Well, yeah, because, um, and I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, when you, when you move from keeping, keeping things local and uh, communal, which uh, Mm -hmm. was how it has always been to, when it gets played at the next level um, as a political game by the military, the minute that it becomes a political game, then you have um, money, interest groups, you know, influence, um, accessories, and um, real estate, um, physical or um, you know, metaphorical, right? All of that comes into play. And I mean, it's, it, it's really, it really was a long drawn out, political campaign hmm. um, right that uh, the who owns the say on race and religion mm-hmm. that as soon as you put that out there because that that moves that moves people um, that when you know when the when we had I, I don't want to say we had democracy but when we had a guise of democracy or something mm-hmm. that, um is not entirely authoritarian let's put it that way mm-hmm. when we had that um the what wh- what's the main issue what's the the conflict that will drive the political debate you need to find something else it mm-hmm. you know and, and economics is not sexy enough because it's not danger at your door it's not you know it's not it's certainly important and you know there there were uh, multi-pronged approaches to um figure out um well we need to get our economy ahead but everybody every side agrees with that you know Mm -hmm. every side it doesn't matter who you ask um sure yeah democracy supporter anyone really i mean the rebel out in the jungle they'll tell you oh yeah we need we need to improve our economy they get Mm -hmm. that we catch Mm -hmm. up you know, get to a level where um, we, we are operating at a at a level and equal playing field at, at the very least at the regional level, if not at the global level. That mm-hmm. that much is understood. So, w- what is the the tension, right, that can be created to feed this political debate? Because you need issues. I mean, you need well, you know, the same way the emergence of the cultural wars in the United States, and we can talk about that until <laughs> until mm-hmm. the council 
home. Mm-hmm. But uh, similar, quite similar to that, I think, um, you know, they, they needed to feed that. And it's already, uh, you know, pre-existing um, notions in people's uh, mindset. So that's something that could easily be capitalized on. And when, um, when that becomes the the long driven political campaign with the resources behind it the fight yeah. for that those resources and the fight for those um you know um pockets of power by those who um on the surface reject power and everything um so or, or anything determined or defined as humanly and earthly possessions. Mm-hmm. That's the conundrum, right? And to mm-hmm. be able to do that while still maintaining a base <laughs> mm. or, or, or justifying their continued, uh, you know, standing original teachings, uh, that, that that's a balance that's very hard to maintain, I thought. Um, I don't want to get into specifics. I know that's what you're mm. looking for. And I, you know, I, I do want to go back home one day and uh, sure. I will never point fingers at a, at a monk leader or a collective group of monk leaders. Sure, sure. Uh, but there are, but the way that the leadership of the monkhood have been politicized and in a way, I would argue, trapped, politically trapped mm-hmm. by the military's maneuver mm-hmm. is a sad development in this uh, page of Myanmar's history. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. And I, and to be clear, I definitely would never want to prompt you or another lay guest to uh, be specific about a criticism towards a, a specific monastic. That's uh, that's very sensitive and fragile ground. Some guests have gone on their on their on their own volition at a at a time of revolution like this, where they just really felt the need to put something out there. But I would never want to set something up knowing the the delicacies involved. And also myself coming from a background. I mean my reason I came to Myanmar in the first place was meditation. My first love of wanting to be in this country and society was based on this is where the origins of the mindfulness movement started. So I, it's also been my own inner journey to have to reconcile my respect and reverence for what brought me there with the the complicated messiness of the existence of that reality. And so much of what we try to do on this platform, among other tasks, is to try to get into that messiness and talk about it in a respectful but honest way. And that's that's always a bit challenging to do, but I think any effort does help in being able to, to shine a light on a very important part of Myanmar that's often not discussed with, I think, the level of knowledge and, uh, and, and, and insight in looking at it and trying to understand it because it, it just always finds a way to elude some kind of understanding. So I appreciate your, your time and analysis on that. And at the same time, also want to get back to your journey. These have been very interesting and important tangents that we've been able to walk down that have definitely taught me a lot and given me a lot to think about. Uh, I, I want to get to what brought you to America, how you got there, and then what you've been doing since. Perhaps the one of the best ways to do that is to start with your window into American culture in Yangon, which came in the form of the American Center. So tell us about how you found the American Center and what kind of beacon that offered you at the time, and then what propelled you to transition from 
middle class, lower middle class, as you describe, um, uh, kind of coming from that background in Myanmar to having lived in DC for a decade and what you've been doing there. Oh, yes. Um, so when I was, I really discovered the American Center at at four, 14, when I was 14 years old. And, um, you know, back then you, you needed to have, matric- have passed matriculation, or they say pretty much, you'd have to be a high school graduate in order to get a membership at the American Center. And, um, you know, uh, well, I think it's that the, you, you can, you can take the, the, the kid out of Shredagon talking to Taurus, but you can never take that spirit out of him. Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Uh, it's the same mentality where, well, what do you got to lose? You know, you don't, you never, you don't get the things you don't ask for. So, uh, I, through through some family contacts and um, we managed to um, I managed to attend um, a, a culture event it was a dance I think where the um, public affairs officer of a of the American Center at that time was present as well and I introduced myself and I said you know I I really am um, <laughs> sick and tired of either one not getting access to proper books or two. Mm. Uh, reading redacted ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> by any chance, even if just for the purpose of using your library, that you could let me in. And here are the books that I'd like to read. Um, and here's why. And she looked at some of them, and she was like, "Ah, oh, so these are my favorites too." And mm-hmm. we started a conversation. And mm-hmm. uh, she said, "When well, you come by the office one of these days, and we'll see what we can do." Mm-hmm. And it, it started as a conditional membership, right? So mm-hmm. he's like, "All right." We'll give you a little library card, and um, you know you can come and rent books that you'd like. Or if you feel that some of the books are too dangerous to bring outside, why don't you just sit and read here, and we'll create a little space for you. Wow. And I was, I was like, this is so exciting, mm-hmm. and I loved it. I loved mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, once you're in, you're in, right? I mean, you go mm-hmm. in the American Center. I mean, you, you know that you know well at least officially no one's following you there like no no one you know they they have they have security and um checks at the front so you know at, at least from a uniformed guard uniformed military police you're safe from and and it's american soil right technically so you you kind of you feel a uh, you don't you feel a sense where you don't have to look watch over your back every two minutes is, mm. is the sense, right? Right, um, right. And the, the, it started with the books, but then it's really the game changer was the book clubs. Um, we had an every Wednesday, there was a book every Wednesday, Wednesday, last Wednesday of every month, we had a book club of um, celebrated writers, of um, political activists, you know, mm. formerly imprisoned, um, and and some um, you know poets, artists, um, celebrities that just came by to sit around and you know have some snacks and talk about a book they choose of the month. We read mm. you know, Maya Angelou, Thoreau, <laughs> um, we all the way down to Who Done It's Like Dan Brown. It didn't matter. Mm. It was a place uh, where people gathered and just had a safe haven of conversation for two hours every evening. And that was, 
the highlight of my every week for a solid two years. <laughs> that was, it was so exciting. It was so exciting because one, I was the youngest. So there was like, you know, there was um, a gimmicky factor to it too. I right? was like, well, what's this kid doing? And all these are really experienced, really smart people who, you know, you, you see on TV sometimes, like sometimes you, you know, you've heard about, um, you've heard their names whispered, you know, mm -hmm. when what movement this person participated in and spent 20 years oh, in right. yeah. now I'm on amnesty and she's just sitting there next to you. And, you know, yeah. and that, that, that to me was, um, it, 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 and a, a curious person like mine with, uh, you know, so many questions, unlimited questions on it. Uh, it was, it was heaven. It was a safe haven and it was, mm. and I, I enjoyed every minute of it. And that's where I made a lot of connections, a lot of, um, you know, what I learned a lot from, from various um, intellectuals and academics and activists um, on, you know, their vision for the country and their, their vision for um, our future and what, what mm. can be done within this mm -hmm. realm of reality. Right. And, you know, and I, for, for, and they, they were gracious on their part too you know it, mm -hmm. it, it was uh, almost became a a standard uh, question where you know everyone in the middle or sometimes at the end of the dialogue would the whole room would turn to me and go so what does the youngest member of the group think <laughs> like, oh shoot now i have to prepare an mm -hmm. answer and that that helped that really helped too because you know you're going in and you're going to have a space to say you're going to have at yeah. least help because there was no one that's under, I think there was no one under 30 or 40 in that room. And I was the only one, only teenager there. Yeah. So um, for them too, it was, I'm, I'm sure the first few things I said made absolutely no sense, but <laughs> uh, whether out of, um, again, simple graciousness or amusement, they kept it and left it going. And it wasn't dismissed. It was, you know, unlike, um, most of other societies uh, where commonplace, usually when you're a child, you know your place, you are seen but not heard, right? Uh -huh. That that was when that is a norm. And when now you have these people that society writ large considers leaders and intellectuals actually turning to you and saying, okay, so what do you have to say about that? And it doesn't matter what it is you're talking about. You feel, well, you better get your act together or, you know, or else. I don't, I don't even know what the consequence of not being or giving it the proper thought and having done the homework was. You just don't take that chance. And, and that honed, you know, my ability to think deeper, yeah. uh, critical to, well, again, do my homework. And, uh, mm. uh those interactions um, le led me to the some officials from attending this book club from the U.S. Embassy recommending my name uh, through their um, Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs that got me selected to the first ever uh, Southeast Asia Youth Leadership Program mm -hmm. that, that that they hosted. Now this was. Um, before, way before, like the, you, you may recall the Waisili program that President Obama announced, the Young Southeast Asia Leaders Initiative. This preceded that. Okay, this was uh, an early program um, that uh, allowed me to come to the United States for a month and, you know, 
took uh, a few seminars at the uh, Northern Illinois University in DeKalb. Um, and uh, then after that, a week in Washington, D.C., uh, engaging with um, entities that are involved in the ASEAN space um, and uh, and just get a small glimpse, really. I mean, we, we toured a few... Um, you know, congressional offices as well, but it offers a glimpse, a glimpse of, of what, what it's like, what it's like outside of my mm-hmm. first time outside the country too. Can you imagine the first time outside the yeah, country? Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was in America. It was, it was overwhelming, but it was also mm. really um, addictive in the sense that, mm. wait, you, you know, it's now it's not just a, a, a room of, um, by that time, I mean, it was, it was a room of people that, you know, you, you already know and you have somewhat cordial, friendship, friendly relations, friendly relationships with uh, in that book club. It's not just your members of the book club. Uh, now you have people who want you to share your thoughts about your country, your region and your region and your country in correlation to the U.S. And you want to take it a step further in a correlation to well, global dynamics, mm-hmm. politics or otherwise. I mean, now you, you, it's it's an elevated um, level of of dialogue. My first ever, at, and mm. at that level, I was able to to participate in, and um, they also exposed me to what the American education system um, of you know open debate. I mean, you sit mm-hmm. in classes and and you see you know freshmen can have an open debate with. Um, a senior, or, mm-hmm. or, or even the professor. Right, <laughs> right. So that to me was just um, there was just so, something so intoxicating about it. Mm. Um, and and I said, well, uh, you know, it may be a month's visit, but I I I'm coming back here. Mm. I'm coming back here to to do this for a longer term. And and I and I managed. That's a whole story in itself on on how I how my journey um, to, you know, study in the United States um, to, you know, through the uh, internet shutdowns, um, mm-hmm. being through Princeton reviews, best 373 colleges in the United States and uh, sort of just figuring out what made the most, well, well, one, you look at the rankings and then two, you know, you, you, you look at the, price and you know if it's lower to mid-tier then you draw the net sometimes you look at the name even like oh this sounds like a nice name to you know go to college i kid you not that was as simple mm, as that you, sure. i would hand the applications i applied to um over 30 colleges and universities and, mm. <laughs> and uh, hand wrote all my applications in wow um and uh, of them uh, several wrote back and many of them um not anywhere close to the level of scholarship and um, support that uh, Washington and Jefferson College was able to provide. Um, and, you know, of course, other um, additional scholarships, which uh, enable me to um, study my, finish my undergraduate education here without any financial support from home. Mm, that's amazing. I know we would like re- literally right in the middle of um, <laughs> how we want to frame this and the next mm. next part of it being, okay, after college, you know, exposure to American society and culture and then 
um, and then the work environment being working on Myanmar, my, yeah. um, well, well, and also not to mention Don San Suu Kyi's Nobel Prize Fund funding my schooling, and then having the opportunity to have met her and being, mm -hmm. you know, being her chaperone during her visit to the, mm -hmm. to the U.S. Uh, and then, you know, committing to her uh, or more, more so uh, offering uh, my service to come back and serve the country in a public capacity right. uh, directly to her being turned down because I was quote unquote, too young, too naive. Mm. Uh, but then um, she was right in that assessment, you know, figuring out a way to continue supporting and doing my part here to bring quality American investments mm -hmm. and, um, and opportunities to the Myanmar market mm -hmm. while working with, um, you know, like-minded policymakers in the quasi-civilian government that we had to mm -hmm. um, work together on legislation and policies that, that opened up uh, the market and created opportunities for our youth mm -hmm. to my last meeting with her in 2019 at her mm -hmm. home where mm -hmm. I half jokingly or, and, and half seriously, of course, asked her, okay, well, do you, do you think I am ready now? Mother was mm -hmm. my question to her. Mm -hmm. And she said, let's talk after the election. That mm -hmm. was the last time I saw her December mm -hmm. 2019. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and then of course to today where in a post-coup Myanmar, uh, what are the, you know, what are the options, right? Is there a way yeah. out? Well, um, I, I appreciate you making the time. And, and once again, I, I can't stress this enough that th thank you for continuing to shine a much needed light on the Myanmar story. Uh, I know that uh, with the, you know, greater geopolitical challenges that uh, uh, supersede uh, the issues of our time, um, ours tend to fade in the mm. background. And as we speak, uh, Cyclone Mocha has yeah. wiped out many communities yeah. in the country, particularly the kind state that have been hit the hardest. And mm. you'll, you'll, you'll see um, international coverage, uh, media and otherwise uh, on, on the matter, pretty much non-existent. And um, not saying that, you know, um, that our problems are particularly unique, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, it is heartwarming and it is um, soul nourishing mm -hmm. to have people who continue to champion and advocate for our cause. Thank you. Thank you for that. I mean, it's what we're set up to do. It's, uh, it's, it's the only thing that we're trying to do is to just try to have these conversations that can inform the people that are already caring and that can also reach out of the usual bubble and engage new people in new ways of, you know, dynamic storytelling and, uh, and commentary. Um, so, you know, just thank you for being a part of, of that, uh, uh, being, being a piece and a voice that shares that greater whole yeah, this has been so great and so educational to hear everything about your background, where you came from. And it's what it's really doing is it's really setting us up. And as we look at the, the, the clock right now as we're running out of time because we went into such wonderful detail about uh, some of the background and some of the context of your life growing up in Myanmar society and the monkhood. It was wonderful and no regrets there. I, I learned so much myself 
but we're running out of time to be able to tell your more recent story uh, and also the more recent story of Myanmar. So I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll put a cap in this here. This will be the episode and we'll make a plan to meet again and do a part two of this to be able to spend more time going into those areas that I just think are, are, are so important and that are really relevant to our current time. So let's make this the end of part one, look forward to part two. And thank you so much again for taking this time to come on here and talk to us. And it's just been so valuable. Thank you. Thank you, Joa, for, well, for, for, for one, your, your indulgence with my long windedness. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) but more importantly, Joa, for, for your uh, continued efforts towards and shining, the light on the Myanmar issue. I know with the um, political crises and, and issues of our time, sometimes the Myanmar issue tends to uh, disappear to the background or in some case dim in the background. And uh, really having champions such as yourself who continue to um, look out for the cause, um, it. Uh, it keeps us going and you know as we speak um, there's a cyclone cyclone mocha that has disseminated uh, communities through uh, decimated sorry uh, decimated communities across Myanmar uh, particularly in in Rakhine state uh, where the damage is um, uh, p- particularly jarring so you know Whatever the crisis may be, humanitarian, environmental, or political, um, it, it is in to some way, shape or form. I know that the onus is on us, the my people, to um, walk our walk and fight our own battles. But it is helpful to know that there are friends of Myanmar who care, who mm-hmm. will continue to care and um, try to support in any way that they can throughout. That's, uh, that's encouraging. And I think uh, the leadership of individuals such as yourself and the success of podcasts such as this are testaments to that. So I thank you. For whatever reason, even as the conflict in Myanmar continues to worsen, it somehow continues to be shut out of the Western media news cycle. And even when the foreign media does report on the conflict, it's often presented as a reductionist, simplistic caricature that inhibits a more thorough understanding of the situation. In contrast, our podcast platform endeavors to portray a much more authentic, detailed, and dynamic reality of the country and its people, one that nurtures deeper understanding and nuanced appreciation. Not only do we ensure that a broad cross-section of ideas and perspectives from Burmese guests regularly appear on our platform, but we also try to bring in foreign experts, scholars, and allies who can share from their experience as well. But we can't continue to produce at this consistency and at the level of quality we aim for without your help. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. 
Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Refugee Camps, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects, as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. That's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar, available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's Aloka Crafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A-C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Oh, ba, yaranan da, da, yaranan, da, yaranan, yada, yaranan, boda, ba, yaranan, no.